That's a fun passage on a sleepy morning. Thank you, Layla. Music team. That is an age-old debate. If you're not familiar in church circles and theological circles, just so I'm going to set the record straight, I was going to do a whole thing about the Reformation and the Protestant church. We don't have time. Maybe Sunday school class one day. The Reformation happened about 500 years ago. Martin Luther and a couple other people were tired of basically people being told you could buy your own salvation and many other things. If you had enough money, you're going to heaven. Uh, that's not what the Bible teaches. Jesus never taught that. Don't simply hate on the church for that. It's just where things had gotten to. And we know that from the Reformation and from the Protestant movement, uh, the teachings of our Lord were fortified and maybe reheralded. And we know that faith alone saves, that God alone saves, that he gives grace to us to believe and unites us with Christ. That's never been debated but what Layla read and what we're going to get to is when we rest on that truth and when we simply say, I got all the Bible answers, I'm good, I'm going to go on a ticket to heaven, that's what James is writing against. So there's this, the kingdom, I think, God's kingdom is more like a waltz at times than anything else. Jesus is the lead and the music plays, and at times we know where we're going, and at times we trust him by faith in the mystery that is salvation, and we let him lead us. And we like, this, this is our ride right here. So we'll talk more about that, okay? But this is a somewhat, I'm not going to say controversial section, but it has come up through history, and people have much to say on it. If you don't believe me, go to Google or Bing or Yahoo or your search engine of preference this week, and type in James and faith versus works, and you'll, but read good stuff. Make sure there's no typos in the URL. Let me give you a fake news quiz right here, okay. If there's typos in the URL, if there's typos in the title, thank you very much. Pass it on. That's my wife's tip, right? But read good stuff and find out. And if you need more resources, I can help you out with that. But this is a, a glorious passage. Hopefully we're encouraged. Let me pray, and we'll get to James chapter 2, and I might pass out coffee. I see it on your faces already. Or I might yell a lot. Father, help me and help us. Show us your kingdom coming, your kingdom here and your kingdom to come. Show us the writings of this man, James, this half-brother of our Lord. And show us his really vigor for the church and longings for the church. Not to be ones who are filled with dead religion and dead faith, but ones who would be spurred on to works. Help me now in Jesus' name. Amen. Real quickly, let's establish two things. Faith is belief in James's context in God's saving plan and sending Jesus. That's what the faith he's talking about. Faith. Works is not nine to five. Works is your life. That's what he's getting at. So I want to define those. Faith is belief in the gospel, belief that God is real, that we're not God, that we've messed up, that we needed a Savior, and we receive forgiveness and mercy by faith, and then we go and move, and we follow Jesus. Works is our lives. And last week, what did we learn? We learned we are called to live under the law of liberty. Jesus, the man, what he's ushered in, the law of liberty James focused on was not a moral code or an abstract way of morality. It was simply obeying the teachings of Jesus, 
and following him as long as we have breath in our lungs. That looks different for all of us. Not the following, but the playing out. That looks different for the student. That looks different for the young family. That looks different than the single, for the single person. That looks different for the retired folk. And that looks different for those of us who might be in the last season of our life. But the call is the same. We receive the mercy of God by faith and forgiveness. And then he simply says, live your life. So here we go. James chapter 2, verse 14. And James, if you're not familiar, is going to introduce an antagonist in the story. Do you guys know what an antagonist is? I studied a little bit this week. It's someone who shows up and begins to ask questions or by way of living prod against the norm. He brings issues up, okay? And so we'll get there with this analogy, but there's an antagonist coming and James is going to answer back. This is what he says. James 2, uh, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? James, a good pastor in and around Jerusalem, is writing for a reason. He is putting this before Christians because obviously we can deduce in his experience this is an issue in the church. And then he goes on to say, the second half of the verse, can that faith save him? Look at verse 15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed or lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Let me say it this way. Let's say my wife is on the coral of Laurel and Arroyo. She appears to have great need by her clothing, and it appears she hasn't eaten a square meal in two or three days. Pastor Dave walks by. Oh, dear sister, how are you? No, you're just a person. You're not my wife right now. I'll never say that. Yeah. How are you? You appear to be in need. Let me tell you about heaven. Let me tell you about the Bible. Let me tell you about our church. We're doing all these things. Bless you, sister. Let's walk away. What is that? Oh, that's stupidity. And I'm saying it because I did it. That's nonsense. It would be better if Pastor Dave just said, hi, have a good day. Because what I've done is I've interjected my so-called faith and my piety and done nothing for one of God's children in her time of need. It would be better for me to go to Starbucks if I could, if I have the means, or somewhere, or go to my trunk and grab a sweatshirt and say, here you go, sister. I think you could use this in a nice, like we talk about, non-condescending way, and then maybe sit with her for five minutes. If it's okay, there's, there's appropriations with genders and norms and societal things, and begin to minister in that way. I don't want to be heretical. Does this dear sister care about expiation and the atonement right now in her time of need? Probably not. We might get there, but she cares about my stomach is empty, my clothes are shoddy, and my kids haven't eaten in two days. That's what she cares about. So James is putting before us this great debate in church circles, religious circles. 
And he's saying, I don't care how much you know. If you say to someone in need, bless you, may God magically fill your stomach, amen, your faith is worthless. Not my words, James. Where did he get this from, by the way? Where did James get his ammo from? So you can be mad at someone else, too. So can I. Jesus. James isn't in the local Starbucks having too much espresso, starting to freak out. This is how Jesus taught, and we'll see that in a minute, okay? Look at verse 17. James wraps it up maybe better than me. So also faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. James for us, and I tried to with that little story, I tried to show us what dead faith looks like. What does dead faith look like? I'm good, I'm going to heaven, I can't wait to get there. The hell with the world. That's kind of how the Pharisees operated in the first century, if we really read. It's kind of what they were about. Not totally, because there were political aspirations too, but it's kind of how they did business. Verse 17 is a bold statement. This is what, I'll use it, triggered some of the reformers. Some of the men and women who were like, ah, because can this by itself stand? See it in its context. God saves us by grace alone through faith alone, but then he commissions us and shows us that saving faith is never apart from a changed and salt and light type life. That's what Jesus taught. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Again, it is not works meriting unto salvation. It is our life. That's what James is saying. Where did he get this? Real quickly, Luke 6, chapter 46. This is, uh, sorry, Luke chapter 6, verse 46 this is Luke's account of the Sermon on the Mount type teaching. We studied it for a long time. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Lord, Lord is a faith type language, right? I believe in God. I call him Lord. We're good. He and I are buds. But Jesus clearly says to people who are listening and to people who have tried to obey God, why do you call me Lord and do not do what I tell you? What did he tell them to do? Luke's version, the entire Sermon on the Mount. Deal with people in this way. This is how the kingdom is lived out. This is how the kingdom is built. These are the types of people that are happy the kingdom is here. Verse 47, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose and the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. Much of the church, in my opinion, has hijacked this passage and made it a ticket to heaven. It doesn't appear it's a ticket to heaven in Matthew or Luke. It appears upon the hearing of the gospel, I start to pursue Jesus now, and my life is different going forward. Because much of the time we say, well, the floods and the storm is death. We might be able to get there in Matthew, and Luke, it's not that way. What's the floods and the storms of life? 
I just celebrated a funeral, was a part of a funeral on Friday in Sacramento. That's one of the floods and the storms of life, hard times. What did James tell us in chapter one? Even though they're difficult, welcome them because they can be used by God. Sickness, hardship, heartache, loss, disease, affliction. One of the things I mentioned at the funeral was I don't look like I did when I was 20. My body is decaying. That's a hardship for all of us, right? If we could stay the way we were at 22, life would be different, right? Camilla, are you there yet? Are you 22? She's looking forward to it. That's good. Almost, right? So we see Jesus teaching about the kingdom. Look at verse 49, Luke 6. But the one who hears this and does not do them. Is that James 1, 22 through 26? Yes. Remember what James said? If anyone hears the teaching of the Lord or the word of the Lord and doesn't do it, he or she is like a person who studies their face and walks out and forgets what they look like. Luke 6, 49. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruins of the house were great. So that's where James gets his ammo. He is speaking on behalf of the Lord via the Holy Spirit, and as a pastor, he is teaching people. So let's get back to James 2, 18. Here comes the antagonist. Here comes the rabble-rouser. Here comes the good Christian. Here comes the studied Christian. By the way, most of us in this room, if we call ourselves Christians, we are some of the most studied on the planet as we know it right now. We have much more information. We have a complete Bible. We have church history. We have the full story of the gospel, the way it's woven through 2,000 years. So we are pretty in the know. So the people when James were writing, they didn't have as much. They had eyewitnesses and God's plan unfolding. But someone will say, verse 18 in James 2, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. And what does the pastor say? I will show you my faith by my works. Back to the antagonist, James says, you believe that God is one, you do well, good job. Even the demons believe that and they shudder. If you don't catch it, that is the pastoral smackdown. <laughs> you see what just happened? The antagonist pops up and he's like, let's talk about faith and work separately. Let's talk about how I can have faith and you can have works and we can be one big happy family. And James says, as a pastor, as a witness, as a brother of the Lord, I will show you his life in fruition, the gospel, through my works. And then he goes to the antagonist. I'm glad you believe that God is one. I'm glad you have these theoretical thoughts about Jesus, but the demons do, and he one-ups them, and they shudder. So he kind of, in a way, kind of pokes at this bear of the antagonist, and he jabs, and then he hits him with a hard left, and then he jabs again. And he plays the game, obviously rhetorically, metaphorically, and he says, faith and works must be melded together in the gospel. And what we learn is faith alone, on its own, worthless, 
works on its own worthless because Jesus taught us these things. By the way, if you didn't catch it, do you know the demons have a better theology than your pastor? Me? Anyone in this room? We can discuss Satan and the devil. He has a better theology than of anyone who's ever lived, but Jesus probably. That might be a weird statement, but the point is they know much more than I do than you do about God. They know the theoretical abstract thoughts of who Jesus is and what he did and all these different things. We are called to study and learn and read and be taught well as a, we'll say it, a subsidy as a driving force so that our faith can grow and our works will show the light of the gospel every day. We'll say it this way. We have one of these chairs we're talking about over the next few months. I was going to ask for a volunteer, but you guys are sleepy. This is kind of like what James is saying, I think. Let's say we have James and our antagonist. I need, a, I need a volunteer. Camille, you want to be a volunteer? Okay. You should be James, but you want to be the antagonist? Come on, I'm going to give them to you. So let's say Camilla's grown up in the church. You kind of have, right? It's been good, right? Okay. Let's say she knows her stuff. If you don't believe that Camilla knows her stuff, have coffee with her. You know your stuff. Camilla is not the antagonist. Now you're freaked out, okay? So let's have a talk. And I say, Camilla, tell me about this chair. <laughs> She's on it. Camille's very smart. Color, Beautiful color. Sturdy. What about the uh, the legs? And is that steel or is that wood? You know, I'll have to get back to you on that. But okay, didn't make it. she didn't make it. Very good. But but let, let's look at the tag here. It says steel right there, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, it, and these are rated for like 800 pounds. That's a lot of that's a lot of weight, right? Okay. So, do you have faith that that chair will let you sit comfortably? Okay, show me. Don't show me. That's the antagonist part. Show me. Don't show me. The antagonist goes right back to, let me tell you about the, the fabric of it. Let me tell you about the material. Let me tell you about how it was made. And me, James, going, well, why don't you just sit down? And the antagonist immediately goes to, but, 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 but. The chair, the chair, the chair. So, Camilla, do you, do you believe that the chair will hold you and will sustain you and will be comfortable? Oh, yeah, sure. Okay, show me. But, and this, is the, this is the antagonist position. And sometimes we do this with our faith. Sometimes we go all theory, all information, all facts, when the point James is saying, Camilla, if you believe, sit down. And then James comes on the scene and says, I'm glad we know about certain things, but let me show you about my belief in Jesus. And he goes like this. And here's the difference in the whole situation. Camilla, as we get to the end of the story, as an antagonist, misses out 
by theorizing and playing games in her mind over and over, she misses out on many things by not sitting down. So thank you for being the antagonist. Let's hear it for her. Very good. The point uh, is this. James is calling Christians, believers, to simply sit in the chair of faith God has made and show the world, along with their words, that their lives are a proof into whom they believe. It's a little clunky, but I hope you see the bigger picture of the chair. Church, you don't have to explain your way why you believe Jesus every day at work. You know what you got to do? Sit down. When the time comes, after much sitting, after much rolling up your elbows and doing the things Christ would want us to do every single day, there will be opportunities for people to go, why do you have a hope in you, Sam? Tell me. And that might be the opportunity to go, let me tell you about my relationship with God. If you want to. Regardless of what we say or think or believe, people will be much more apt to listening to you, to coming to you, to relating with you if you have sat down two or three, maybe hundred times in the midst of our life than if I stand on a chair day one and go, I'm a Christian, I'm against this. I'm a Christian, this is where I stand. Let me tell you about Jesus. That's great. I don't want to disparage anybody. But what James is getting at is those two have to be the same. Paul would say it this way. If we are not loving, we are sounding gongs. I would rather have you close your mouth and live your life. So James is getting into this great debate of how much do I proclaim and share and at times talk too much, and I get paid to talk for a living, so that's scary, right? As opposed to taking a seat as salt and light. The journey some of us take to intellectual ascent and doctrinal truths are wonderful. Take those as the Lord spurs you on. Find out all you want to know about God, and guess what? You will find out more until your last breath he is that big and that good. But church, don't let that alone be the testimony of the Lord. Let that as well as taking a seat, showing people by your life your faith, let that be melded in or we are off. In the same way, if we flip it, if all we do is take a seat, it's wrong as well, right? The funny part about Jesus, most of the time, I know it's going to freak some people out who have been in church a long time, most of the time he's right in the middle. You don't like to hear that. About the things usually that we think he should be hell-bent about, he's usually like, I'll go hang out at a sinner's house and have dinner. It would be great. You think about that? How could he? Well, that should bring hope, not disparage. <laughs> that should be hope for my heart. But some of the things at times we think are nominal, that's when Jesus digs in. Especially politically. Especially dealing with empire all the way back to Rome. Especially dealing with social norms and roles of men and women. And I mean that in a good way. Especially the way he treated women. He was like, it ain't happening this way anymore, guys. Ain't happening. 
And so we really have to see Jesus for who he is. And James, in this passage, wants us to go right down the middle. He wants faith and works to dance like the waltz I talked about. And he wants them to intersect on every level. That's what James is getting at. Again, so you don't say, pastor said this, we are saved by grace through faith, amen. And those who are saved by grace through faith, over time, our lives will change. And we will see the importance of living everyday life as salt and light, as gospel truth, as people who would take a seat. The people that James is talking about, who were the faith-only people, in my experience, and my, I've seen them from time to time in the church, are usually those whose hearts are dry and crispy and usually use doctrine and theology to whip people because they're hurt themselves. James, to those, say, have a seat, brother. Dive in deep to the Lord. In my experience, you know what melts my heart more than anything else? When I do what Jesus commanded me to do. When I deal with my anger in the gospel. When I forgive, even though it's hard. When I, by grace, tame my lying heart and speak in truth and integrity. When I, by grace, put down the computer and not look at things that I shouldn't look at. When, by grace, I treat my wife as a human being, not as an object. When by grace I treat my children as little humans who don't have to toe the line on certain things I do to feed my own insecurities. That's what parents do. If you're not a parent yet, listen up. Most of the time, our outlandish parenting is because we're concerned about what people think about our kids and look at us. That's what parenting is. That's why sometimes we freak out on the softball field. Pray for me on that one. Softball's tough sometimes, you know. I got to really, it's tough. And this is the beautiful part about taking a seat about having our works align with our faith, James's words, about having our works, our lives, show our faith. We'll get to Abraham next week, but I want to finish with this. I have three daughters. We'll get to pick one in a second, guys. And my youngest daughter is three and a half. And up until this year, she loved the bath and hated the swimming pool. Okay? She loved the bath. She loved taking a seat in the bath. It was wonderful. Once she figured out she wouldn't drown, she would splash herself and then splash dad and then pray for grace in that and not get freaked out, realize she's a kid. And we would play and it would be wonderful. But this year, she began to love the pool because the pool to her was kind of dangerous, right? It's kind of scary. And here's the first picture I have of a little Holland by a pool. It's amazing. It's a beautiful picture. She loves it. She's great. She's much cuter than I, so look at her, right? But the point is, she sat down in faith by trusting all the people who loved her, and she started to experience different things. Her feet are in the water. She gets in the water now. I mean, we have to hold her. She has this little, like, crazy swimsuit that we take her out, and it looks like a, uh, you know what they used to jump over Niagara Falls in the barrel? Kind of looks like that, and she kind of does her thing. But she won't drown. And so the pool's wonderful. She doesn't swim yet, but she loves it. Now, I have two older daughters, and they already love the pool. And some years ago when they were younger, they started to see this thing called the ocean, right? And at first, they were petrified of the ocean. Why were they petrified of the ocean? 
because it was much easier to hear dad go, this is the ocean, this is what it's about, this is the currents, these are the tides, don't go too far, you're going to die. And that was overwhelming, and they knew a lot about the ocean. But once they took a seat, once they began to live in that light, we get pictures like this. Unbelievable, the ocean. How much fun is that? What's better, hearing dad bloviate about the ocean on Google, like maritime stuff, like biology, okay, marine biology, or to do that? What's better? That's life, by the way, if you haven't been in the ocean. It's wonderful. We're going to do a mission trip to a warm beach, amen? Lots of sunscreen. And then they started to swim, and they started to see the waves, and if they're not too big, they started to play in the waves. We might have a little video. We have a video, or is it... Even better. Unbelievable. Waves are over our head and there's sand and we don't die and all this fun stuff. And this is amazing. You want to hear? She's not in here. My oldest one's in here. She's very good getting out of the water. Ashlyn right there is deaf, so she likes that in the water because she doesn't hear a thing. And she is a nightmare to get out of the water. (laughs) Why? Because she's taken a seat. And she's understood the glory of the ocean and the waves. And she has seen in a sense, what the analogy goes, the goodness of the things she was told about. Dad wasn't Boy Scouting me. Dad's telling the truth. This is amazing. And it goes further. Once I get a little older, and once I trust more, we get pictures like this. Now we snorkel. And now a whole world is opened up. Why? Because they simply didn't go yeah, I'm going to Google some pictures about marine stuff and believe Jacques Cousteau or listen to John because John knows a lot about it. And I'm just going to do that. I'll put a, but I lived it because I sat down and I swam with fish off an island in Hawaii. Amazing. There's Nemo. I think she's screaming Nemo, right? Whatever she's screaming. What's Dory? Is that one of them too? Is Dory? Yeah. Okay. And then as we continue to sit and continue to pursue Jesus and continue to decide. It's a decision. I will show my faith not by bloviating alone or keyboards alone or posting alone, but with my life. When we decide to do that, as James is instructing us, we get pictures like this. There she is. And last one. There you go. I only use those pictures to wake us up, but also to hammer in the point what an analogy. If Kayla and Ashlyn, who are in those pictures, and myself, knew all they could know about sea turtles and fish and marine biology and the beach and the tides and the winds and water temperature and everything else and sat there and were experts That would be great, but to them, it would be futile. And hear me, knowledge about the Lord and what he's done through Jesus Christ alone is dead faith. That's what James is saying. Rather, it's when we take a seat, when we jump in the water, and when we pursue the Lord, that's when our faith truly does become alive, and it appears That's what saving faith looks like unto God. Again, we're not doing it. We're simply walking in obedience into what the Lord has given us. So you could ask all three of my, two of my daughters, 
What's better, Google on Hawaiian snorkeling or doing it? Kayla, what's better? Do, doing it, actually, she said actually doing it. And that's how it is walking with the Lord. It is a dance. We must be taught the truth. That's why I try and teach you the Bible. That's important. And then I always try and commission you, go and do likewise just as Jesus has commanded. We didn't have time, but Jesus brings up Father Abraham and a prostitute in this passage. That's amazing. Or John, James does. That's amazing. He brings up the greatest patriarch and one who had a shady living. And we'll get there next week because there's some truth in that too. It's beautiful. If you can and if you want to, please stand. We will close with a word of prayer. Please join us with fellowship. I believe it's three weeks or four weeks from today. We will be going from service. We will be having invitations made and provided with a little bit of candy. It's not too scary. We will head down to the farmer's market after we fellowship and get some coffee. And we will be inviting our neighbors to church on Easter service. That probably sounds like, oh my gosh, it'll be great. We simply greet people with a smile and say, this is for you. We'd love to have you. That's all we're looking to do. And then by doing that, we're asking God to do a mighty work in the hearts of men and women all over. So let's pray, and uh, we'll be done after I pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the gift of scripture, the gift of Jesus. Thank you for a plan to come as the son here to earth, to live a life and to die a death and to be raised. But then thank you for the gift of men and women throughout history who have written and taught and lived and shown us how to live as citizens of this kingdom. Father, I pray for the congregation and myself. May we be people who think about this faith and works team, this tandem, this dance. May we be people who decide in our hearts that, yes, I want to both know and talk and learn wonderful things about the kingdom, but I also want to have my life be the forerunner in many ways. Help us as we go. Bless us until we meet again. In Jesus' name, amen.